This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Say, I recognize that song. This must be the right place. Welcome to the Audio Imaginaria. My name is Richard Serrett. This is the Conspiracy Show. Congratulations, you found us. Come on inside, out of the wind and the rain, take off your coat. We've saved a cozy seat for you, so come in and warm yourself in the warm glow of the electronic bonfire. We search for the truth here. We don't claim to own it. We don't claim to have found it. We're just like you, alone in the dark, searching, looking for answers. But the good news is you're not alone anymore. You've arrived and you are among friends. We've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, We're going to talk about the history of mind control, surveillance, social engineering by the government, the media, secret societies. Uh, In just a few moments, Marie Jones has just published Mind Wars, and she's standing by on the line from Southern California. Uh, But first, follow the truth too. My uh, live stage event, well, it is almost here, Sunday, April the 26th at the Regent Theatre. In Oshawa, that's a mere seven days away. So I thought we'd spend just a few moments here talking about it uh, with one of my partners at Follow the Truth. Here is Paul Coides with Fireside Tartan Events. Hey, Paul, how are you, my friend? Hello, Richard. I'm doing great. How are you? Very good. Thank you, sir. Well, we are, uh, we are in, in countdown mode to the big day. We certainly are, and uh, you know, uh, it's just been—it's been a fantastically interesting kind of uh, journey. You know, since we since we started thinking about this, maybe just over a year ago, uh, and here we are, just days away from our second one. Yeah, it's really quite amazing. Well, uh, very quickly again, follow the truth too at the Regent Theatre. It's an evening event, Sunday, April the twenty-sixth. The website, and you've done a wonderful job pulling that together. Follow the truth TV. And I've been talking about this, of course, for for weeks and weeks, uh, about the speakers and so forth. But just very quickly, because you've had some very interesting synchronicities. And I sort of warned you this would happen once you sort of came into this world. Uh, But just very quickly, what's happened to you in the last couple of weeks? This is fascinating. Well, and and this is just, you know, sort of one of literally, you know, maybe dozens of things that have been happening. But, uh, you know, I, I just have to preface this 
by saying that uh, this whole thing started uh, with a conversation I was having with a friend who suggested that uh, someone should do a, a live conference about you know this type of content, which I didn't know a whole lot about. And that friend actually passed away just before we had our first one of these back in November. And ever since then, and ever since I got deeper into this, you know, a lot of, uh, um, yeah, synchronistic things have been happening sort of beyond coincidence. But most recently, um, I, uh, you know, I, I, um, about a week ago, I uh, kind of innocently posted something on Facebook that uh, I felt like, Richard Dreyfuss uh, at that uh, part of the movie where he's building the uh, mud and stick uh, sculpture in his living room, kind of as a throwaway comment, don't know why I posted it. In Close Encounters, in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, iconic, uh, classic film that I hadn't seen in years just sort of popped into my head. And uh, about uh, maybe less than a week later, through an unusual series of events that I couldn't have predicted, I, uh, I found myself in uh, New York City at a private event with uh, a fellow by the name of Bob Balaban, who's, uh, who was, uh, of course, um, uh, from the movie uh, Close Encounters, and uh, wrote a, a famous book uh, about his experiences in that movie with Steven Spielberg, and of course is on to many, many projects. And uh, I was at an event with him and about maybe 40 other people, and uh, we were chatting, and at that event was also... Uh, you know, the one and only uh, Roger Waters from uh, Pink Floyd. Uh, I've heard of him. Yes, yes, and I'm a you know, big fan, and I was chatting with those folks. And, of course, the fact that I was there in the first place was uh, just a absurd thing because there was no way that uh, I had sort of planted it all very serendipitous. And, um, you know, I realized, uh, and, of course, at the time, when I was speaking with Bob Balaban, I didn't know who he was uh, beforehand by name only until I saw him. And then uh, last night... As I was preparing, uh, you know, things for our uh, conference next week, I happened to catch the last hour of Close Encounters, which randomly happened to be on TV, which is when I pieced this whole thing together. uh, And I thought, wow, what a very, very strange series of events. And it's, you know, one of literally dozens of strange things that have been happening uh, to me since we started this. But the upshot of all is I think that we've decided that uh, our third Follow the Truth will probably likely happen in New York City uh, next time, probably in the fall. Let's do it. Let's do it. And I think I think we'll probably have Mr. Bob Balaban and a few other folks in that circle probably involved uh, this time as well. So this is how things are escalating and amplifying, and it's uh, just been a very interesting ride. Well, welcome to... Uh to this crazy world. It is. You'll find these things escalating, I'm sure. Uh, and many people will obviously appreciate what you're, you're talking about, these synchronicities. So when you start connecting these dots or when they start being connected for you. Uh, Paul Coides is with us very uh, quickly here. Uh, Fireside Tartan Events, uh, my partner as, uh, as a producer of Follow the Truth 2, our live event coming up this Sunday. And if you haven't ordered tickets, it's fast approaching. It's coming at you like a freight train. So get on board. Uh, call the box office at 905-721-3399-905-721-3399. Uh, Paul, you're going to join us at the bottom of the hour. We're going to do a uh, our our uh, trivia, our uh, weekly trivia, and a chance to win a pair of... Actually, we're going to give away 10 tickets, 10 pairs, rather, 10 pairs of tickets for our final sort of Lollapalooza uh, send-off as, as we launch into the uh, the conference. Uh, at the bottom of the hour, stay, in, stay tuned for your chance to win one of uh, 10 pairs of tickets, and you'll have a special trivia question for us. Absolutely, yes. Okay, thanks very much, Paul. Talk to you soon.
Paul Kawidi's Fireside Tartan Events. Uh, my partners at Follow the Truth too. All right. Uh, we spent a lot of time here on The Conspiracy Show talking about various types of mind control, brainwashing, social engineering, surveillance. We'll touch on that at the conference when Dr. John Hall joins us as well. Um, you know, Emerson, one of my favorites, uh, wrote that society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. The virtue in most request is conformity. Self-reliance is its aversion. Now, I'm not 100% sure what Emerson meant by that. But to me, he's speaking about the tremendous pressure brought to bear on individualism by not only the state, but also society at large. Your neighbors, perhaps, the other parents at the PTA meeting, your colleagues at work. Uh, the vast majority have been conscripted in a war against the individual. And the goal is conformity, submission, unquestioning submission to authority. Now, this isn't new. It didn't start with Edward Snowden when he blew the whistle on the NSA. Brainwashing, mind control, social engineering, surveillance, coercion by the state, the media, secret societies, goes back to ancient Egypt and perhaps beyond. And the history of the war for our minds has been nicely collated in a brand new book uh, by a good friend of the program, Marie Jones is the author of several books about the paranormal, metaphysics, and cutting-edge science, many co-authored with Larry Flaxman, including The Deja Vu Enigma, Destiny versus Choice, and 1111, The Time Prompt Phenomenon. She's appeared on more than 1,000 radio shows worldwide and on television, most recently on the History Channel's Ancient Aliens series. Marie, how are you? I am doing good. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you. You are a yeah. very prolific. You and uh, Larry, uh, Larry Flaxman, who's not with us tonight, incredibly no. prolific. Well, uh, I, I think after this, we're going to take a little break. <laughs> what's a break for you? Three weeks? <laughs> oh, next year is our next nonfiction book, although we, we are working on actually a fiction project and a screenplay. But, you know, doing a book like this, it's there's so much research and... I'm telling you, it really does. Your brain needs a break after a while. So well, this, this, is a, this was a tough one. <laughs> it is, and it's a very sinister uh, arena you've entered into. And, and I was mentioning Dr. John Hall coming up uh, to speak at mm -hmm. my conference. I mean, he is totally immersed in this world now. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how about you? I mean, did you, are you in contact with, with uh, targeted individuals? What are people talking to you about? thing. Um, because I've been a writer and I've been just interested in so many different things, and this applies to Larry as well. I know I can speak for him. You know, when we set out to write a book, it's got to be something that we're so fascinated with that we want to spend this amount of time and energy on and, and something that we want to learn about as well. So we've been writing a lot of paranormal, a lot of, you know, quantum physics, that kind of stuff. But we never really sort of delved too much into the more conspiracy angles. We always felt like, I certainly felt like it's been covered. <laughs> I mean, there are so many books out there uh, on mind control and this, that, and the other thing. Why would ours be any different? But what we found is that there wasn't quite something that really um, gave a sort of general introductory overview into these subjects for a more mainstream audience that would be easy to find. And we thought, well, maybe, maybe you know, from a, a more objective standpoint, we can do something like this. Yeah, we'll cover all the conspiracy elements, but we'll also cover, you know, the real historical elements. And we'll get into some other things that maybe, 
you know, people haven't touched upon as much. And it really was um, a way to answer the need that we thought, you know, because if I would have gone to a bookstore or gone online to look for key phrase words, mind control, you're bombarded with so many amazing books. You don't know where to start. And we always like to write books that we feel are good starting points that give a sort of a general education on each subject or each category. And then you go take off and research what really turns you on on your own. That's kind of how the book came about. Right. But yes, I have been contacted. You know, when I was young, (laughs) in my 20s, way back when, um, I was heavily involved in the animal rights movement, in the anti-nuclear movements, there was a lot of um, surveillance going on. And, you know, I've always been hanging around the rebels and the the misfits and the troublemakers, so to speak. But uh, when I started writing this book, it's really interesting how quickly people came to me and started, oh, I heard you're writing a book on mind control. I'm I'm a targeted individual. And at the time, I what does that even mean? Um, or I've had V2K happen to me, and I was like, what? I haven't researched that yet. But there there seemed to be this real cry of people that want to be heard and acknowledged and have had things happen and know about things, and they feel like they're not being heard or they're being treated as if they're a joke, they're being made fun of. So, yeah, it was really interesting, the people that sort of started approaching me. Well, you mentioned V2K, voice to skull. Yeah. And and uh, I mean, there are patents online for this. Uh, I believe, you know, uh, Pentagon officials have admitted the right, technology right. exists. It it's is possible been to for a, while, a sure. pulse a microwave, a pulse a microwave and and uh, signal and and plant voices in someone's head so that only they can hear them. Right. Um, right. What other, what other cutting-edge technology? Well, let's take a time out. We've got that music coming in now. On the other side, we'll pick it up with Marie Jones, co-author of Mind Wars, a history of mind control, surveillance, and social engineering by the government, media, and secret societies. We'll discuss right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Marie Jones is with us, co-author of Mind Wars. And, uh, Marie, people can search this. You go online, and, and uh, the, uh, the New York Times, an article there archived, and I, I believe this goes back to the mid to late 1950s. Uh, they were reporting on, again, New York Times, reporting on the experiments of a Dr. Jose Delgado, who was a neurologist at uh, Yale, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was able to place uh, these, uh, these brain... Uh, implants uh, on uh, monkeys and dogs and uh, even a bull. A bull, And, and yeah. then using a radio transmitter receiver uh, was able, and, and I, I think he, the quote was something like, he could play these animals like electronic toys. He could make mm-hmm. them like sit up. Remote control 
cars and, exactly you know, he, that, that our kids play with. He even made a charging yeah. bull stop in its tracks and then just sort of saunter off in another direction, again, using these radio signals. If that was possible nearly 60 years ago, what yeah. can they do now? Absolutely. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, the technology has advanced by leaps and bounds. And with the V2K, I mean, that's been around since the early 60s. And we also have sonic, they're called non-lethal weapons. And we have sonic weapons that use sound, sound waves that can disable or disorient or or even kill, I I suppose, if they wanted to. Um, Microwave pulses of heat we have uh oh gosh what else um the lita and all kinds of new weapons that have been around actually for a while so i can't even imagine here's here's what i think though so you've got that uh, you've got these quote unquote directed energy weapons that use microwaves they use heat they use sound waves light whatever whatever it can alter or manipulate our brains now we have these wonderful things called drones that are buzzing around and, and often flying under the radar and undetectable. I think it's only a matter of time before you start hearing about drones that are carrying this kind of technology and being used to you know, put down riots or protests or, uh, or even just uh, quiet gatherings of civilians, you know, talking about how much they hate the government. But uh, that's one of the things that bothers me the most is the insidious nature of these new technologies is that with something like V2K or microwave pulsing, you don't know what's hitting you. You start feeling sick. You hear voices. You, you, know, you feel disoriented. You may be vomiting and have heat rashes break out on your skin, massive headaches. Forced speech, and, saying inappropriate it, things. Exactly, exactly. You feel, quote, not yourself, unquote, but you don't know why. And so what do you do? You go to the doctor and they tell you, well, maybe you need an antidepressant or something. And you have no way of knowing if this is something that you're experiencing. Um, I've heard from targeted individuals who don't know why they're targeted. They don't have uh, government jobs. They, they're not whistleblowers. They, um, they don't have access to classified information where you can find a motive for them being targeted and stalked and harassed. To me, those are the most credible cases, too. The people that, uh, and I've I've talked to some uh, alleged targeted individuals, the people that come along and say, I have no idea why this is happening. To me, those are the most credible ones versus, well, you know, I worked with DARPA and, uh, you know, I had access to this and that, and I think that's why. Uh, It's the the average citizen um, who's being targeted. And it's, what are we, guinea pigs? And I've talked to a few and I've said, well, why do you think? You know, what possible and and more than a few felt like they were just test subjects that they were just guinea pigs that you know it's like well if not me then you uh and and they were just picked out in a crowd to be experimented on and and that's really frightening because it makes you feel like well gee if i keep my nose clean and i i I don't do anything wrong you know i don't even have a speeding ticket i could still become a target of this kind of activity uh, and then for me, as a writer, I, you know, I feel like, well, gee, I've got some reasons why you might want to 
target me. I do want to tell you something interesting, though, with the V2K is that when Larry and I were writing the book, and this is about a year ago that we were actually deeply involved in that chapter and doing the research, I started hearing um, a lot of beeps and clicks in my head. Interesting. And, and you know, I'm a pretty smart girl, <laughs> and I don't, I don't buy into things, you know, without proof. But I started noticing at the same time it would happen, I would feel a sort of buzzing sensation that would start under my feet and go up into my legs. And I started getting really scared. I thought that this might be a symptom of multiple sclerosis or some kind of, you know, neurological disorder, what have you. And I went to my doctor and she said, you know, you're fine, you're fine. You, you know, maybe it's just where you're living. Maybe you're being exposed to some electronic or whatever. But as time went on, I started to notice that the beeps and clicks sounded very much like Morse code. I have a familiarity with Morse code because I'm a ham radio operator. And I thought, this is really weird. I wonder if somebody's messing with me. You know, and you kind of get paranoid when you're writing a book. Well, listen, uh, Dr. Hall was telling me uh, recently, he said that in his experience, in his research, that the the voice to skull often starts as tinnitus. It's almost as as if they're trying to find a resonant frequency. Yeah, and the ringing sounds, but they would have a pattern to them. You know, it wouldn't just be, like, oh, man, my hearing is going. There would be very distinct lengths of of the tones that were being played in my head. And every now and then I could hear voices, and I thought, well, you know, I live in a condo. Maybe it's my neighbors. But as I'm doing this research, I'm really starting to think, wow, I wonder if just because now I'm aware of it. And the funny thing is, is when I moved from that location and we turned the book into the editor, um, it stopped. And I've had it a couple of times since, but nowhere near. Isn't that interesting? What was going on. So I thought that was kind of creepy. Beyond but, creepy, Marie. Yeah. Uh, what about is. your co-author, Larry? Has Larry Flaxman experienced anything like you this? You know, I he never said he did, but he works during the day, and he works you know, in a very loud, active, and he actually works for Homeland Security, believe it or not. Um, oh, isn't And so that I thought, well, maybe because I'm at home all the time, and it's very quiet, maybe I'm more aware of it. Because I notice that when I, you know when you're really busy and you're distracted, it, it, you're not going to hear. It's very subtle. What are you but hearing about? Um, Notice it. Ugh. Yeah, that. And, oh, you can imagine. You get then you had a sort of a small taste of what yeah, these people, yeah, these it victims. Yeah, me crazy. I, I went to my doctor. You know, I call, kept calling her. This is making me crazy. I, I can't get this crap out of my head, and I need to work. You know, and. So I can only imagine, and I know that some of these targeted individuals are also feeling and being exposed to, you know, high amounts of radiation, and uh, it's making not only them sick, but their children, their families, it's crippling them to the point where they can't work, they can't function. That's the thing. It's not just, I met a family in Seattle. The entire family was was targeted, and and I, they showed me pictures. Uh, uh, when an incident would start, and it would it would, uh, it would come on all of a sudden, and it would last for, for you know, several days, uh, and the uh, the father of the family would be bedridden, and when you, when I saw the pictures, sort of the, uh, when he was in the full, uh, you know, symptoms, uh, he was unrecognizable. And yeah. uh, even the dog, 
uh, had uh, the entire muzzle was inflamed and, and, and bright red, and the children had these horrible rashes all over their bodies. Uh, yeah. and, and they yeah. logged, uh, because it's not just not just the, 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 the person involved, uh, their electronic equipment, their appliances. Right. Uh, they right. had a log of all of the um, sort of the things that went wrong with their They were replacing, you know, microwave ovens, washers, dryers, cameras, like every six months. Yeah. Yep. Was that the Jesus Maldonado by any chance? His family? Uh, no, it wasn't. No. Okay. Well, yeah, there's a, a man in Texas and his family went through the very same thing, but... He actually took his case all the way to the Supreme Court level where it was thrown out of court. But, you know, he documented um, taking it to the state court and then to the federal level, all of the harassment, the times, the, the things that were happening. He has pictures of his children. Their faces look like they're bloated and red. And they look, you know, what it reminds me of one of those movies uh, about a nuclear bomb going off. And you, know, you see the people with these red pulpy faces it's just horrifying so there's more than one family going through this now who's you know who's paying attention to this what what can they do and and this is what frustrates me the most is that the only attention that these people seem to get is from people like us yes yes who who are open-minded enough to say okay tell me what happened and um, but beyond that, it, it's very frightening that these kinds of things can happen to human beings, and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, you know, it, it's a kind of a helpless feeling. According to some estimates, there are about 300,000. Uh, now, these are American figures. I don't know what the figures are in Canada. Typically, it's sort of, you know, let's say uh, one-tenth. Right, um, right. So let's say, you know, over 300,000 North Americans uh, being targeted. Now, are those 300,000 simply the ones that are resisting, and that's why we're hearing from them? Uh, maybe to a certain level, we're all being targeted. Well, yeah, and you've got to think, too, are those the 300,000 the ones that are aware of it? Because if you read some of the symptoms of electronic or microwave harassment, it can make you feel like you're coming down with some horrible disease or you're, you're extremely fatigued or maybe there's something in your home like mold or... Uh, you know, faulty wiring. I mean, I don't know that that's the first thing that the majority of Americans would think of when they're experiencing these things. That's one of the reasons why, you know, I wanted to add another book into the mix so that the more people read about this, somebody out there is going to say, this is happening to me. Holy crap, look at this list that they have in this book. This is happening to me. Because I never would have known what was going on. I would have thought, dang, now my hearing is going. <laughs> you know, first my vision. and So people just aren't aware of it, except for those of us that have a reason to be aware of it, I think. And, and for those who, who may doubt this story and think it's ridiculous, first of all, we know the technology is available. It exists. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but secondly, the other problem is often... Whoever these perps are, they're very clever. They will often pick on people who are already sort of discredited. Uh, they yeah. may have a criminal yeah. record. They may have dabbled in, you know, narcotics or alcohol. Uh, they may even have some other underlying uh, mental health issue. So right. they're very easy to dismiss. I mean, we know exactly. that, you know, typically, uh, you know, governments have experimented on the prison population, for example. Yep, orphans, the mentally ill, pregnant women, you name it. If you are in any way, shape, or form at a disadvantage, 
you know, they've got their radar or their target on you. And I totally agree with that because I think people that are, you know, in a position where they can fight back. I mean, I don't think they're going to pick on a lot of politicians and lawyers, but you're right. It seems like they are very um, clever in the way that they choose their victims. They choose people that if they were to speak out, those people would be almost instantly discredited. Who who are the perps, do you think? Oh, such a good question. But here's what I've heard. And, and you know, again, we always say the government. Well, the government of whatever nation is, is uh, using this kind of technology, and I'm sure it's not just the United States or the military. We have these sort of broad umbrella terms for who we think is responsible, the CIA, the NSA, what have you. But a couple of the TIs that I talked to, they were really enlightening because they said that they felt that even private corporations have access to this technology. And, you know, why not? Why They are entities among themselves. I mean, private corporations are so powerful, they actually have personhood rights in the United States. And they may be doing this too, but it also could be, you know, these real uh, sort of Unabomber-like people that um, are lone wolves, but they're brilliant with technology, and they just are harassing a neighbor. I think the TI really has to kind of try to find out who, you know, first of all, what reason there might be, if there is one, um, and then why or who, and I don't know how you do that, because again, if you try to, well, you know, if you go to the police, what are they going to do? If you go to the media, oh, please. So I think they rely on people that are in the field of conspiracies and uh, the paranormal, what have you, people that are open-minded. All right, Marie, we'll take, a, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and continue to discuss Mind Wars, who's been watching you from the shadows, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. All right, before we get back to our conversation with Marie Jones, co-author of Mind Wars, who's been watching you from the shadows, it is time for our uh, weekly uh, trivia contest as we give away uh, tickets to Follow the Truth 2, my live stage event happening Sunday, April the 26th. That's one week away. Uh, and uh, here for our final uh, trivia contest for Follow the Truth 2 is Paul Coides from Fireside Tartan Events. Paul, are you there? I, I'm here, Richard, and thanks very much. And, uh, you know, I, um, I, I just have to say, you know, a, a big part of why this is such a special event is not only the, the amazing speakers who are there, but it's also the people that you meet sort of in the crowd. You know, it's sort of that TED uh, conference philosophy that uh, it's about sort of, you know, being there uh, that makes it so uh, so different. I mean, last time we had people who flew in all the way from Los Angeles to sort of join us because they heard uh, about, the, uh, about the event all the way out there. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited to give away more tickets because I think, uh, you know, this movement is growing. And so uh, I'm glad that we're able to sort of do something like this. Okay, and we're going to give away 10 pairs, and you've got a, a trivia question for us. Yes, so 
Um, I, uh, I would like uh, uh, those people who are going to the website, followthetruth.tv, you will notice on the landing page uh, there is a song playing it in the background that starts automatically. And uh, uh, I, uh, for the, those people who can name what that song is, and it's an iconic song that was chosen for a very special reason, uh, that is our trivia question this week. Okay, and let me give you the phone numbers. It is, uh, Tim is standing by now to take your call. It's 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, and toll-free 1-866-740-4740, We'll take the first 10 correct answers right now. The song that's playing on followthetruth.tv, and uh, we'll give away 10 pairs of tickets to Follow the Truth 2. Excellent. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Paul, Paul Coita's uh, Fireside Tartan Events. All right, back to Marie Jones, uh, Mind Wars. Um, you know, let's set the, all the technology aside for a moment, and, and let's talk about other forms of mind control, uh, because they are many. Uh, and oh, as you yeah. point out, they go back to, to ancient uh, Egypt. But I want to talk about social engineering right now, because uh, this is something I see, um, and I, I see the media certainly as being witting participants in this. Uh, for example, and, and politicians now, uh, recent, uh, there was a recent hearing, uh, congressional hearing, in which a, uh, a senator or a congressman um, likened conspiracy bloggers to ISIS terrorists. Oh, uh, and, and David Cameron, the Prime Minister of the UK, have, has, has uh, echoed similar sentiments. I mean, this to me is part of the conditioning, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Give me some more Language examples of social engineering. And, yeah, well, um, social engineering is really just the means by which the media, politicians, religious leaders, even advertisers coerce us into a certain type of behavior or a certain thought process. Um, it's a form of mind control that is very manipulative and very subtle sometimes, because as you said, it involves a lot of the use of language, of framing, um, of associating fear and, and hatred and anger. And one of the most interesting experiments with social engineering is something that I think we'll all relate to, because a lot of us are on Facebook. And I know a lot of people don't know this, but um, in 2012, Facebook actually conducted a little social programming experiment of its own, where it uh, used a very special algorithm that they had developed that would post either uh, positive or negative emotional content. And the idea was that they would take 700,000 users and manipulate the content that was going up and down their walls to see what kind of a response they could get. Now, these people didn't know that this was happening. They didn't know that they were guinea pigs, you know, for Facebook's little social experiment. Um, and it came out later because it was published in a scientific journal. And it also came out later that that wasn't the first time that Facebook had done that kind of thing. So we have, every time you turn on the television, every time you go on uh, 
the online to a news channel or even social networking. You know, anytime you are exposed to a religious leader talking or a politician, chances are your mind is being a little bit manipulated. It is insidious. It is insidious. All right. Marie, we'll take another time out. We'll come back and continue Absolutely. to discuss social engineering, surveillance, mind war. Who's been watching you from the shadows? Marie Jones right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Uh, We still have a few pairs of tickets left, uh, free tickets to Follow the Truth 2. All you have to do... Go on to followthetruth.tv, identify the song that's playing on the landing page in the background, and uh, call Tim in studio, 416-360-0740. Identify the song. You've got a pair of tickets to Follow the Truth to Sunday, April the 26th. And if you don't win, you can always call the box office, 905-721-3399. Maureen Jones is with us for a few moments yet, discussing Mind Wars, which she co-authored with Larry Flaxman, A History of Mind Control, Surveillance, Social Engineering by the Government, Media, and Secret Societies. I don't know if you, uh, I don't know that you touched on this in, in Mind Wars, but um, I'm hearing a lot about, um, uh, you know, people will go to public meetings. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's say there's some sort of a development happening, and uh, uh, they say, oh, we've been Delphi'd, a Delphi technique, where they make the the people that go uh, to these meetings think that what is ever being proposed by whatever agency like it's their idea uh and oh. they are sort of manipulated into right. sort of accepting what's being proposed even though uh, apparently this is an old technique it's called the delphi technique are, are you familiar with that at all I've heard of it, but I had no idea that's what it was. It reminds me of some of the other, you know, sort of Est-type, almost cult-like groups and organizations from the 70s where you thought that you were going to a sort of self-empowerment conference and, you know, really what you were doing is being brainwashed. Um, But it is interesting. I mean, it's sort of a turn-the-tables type of manipulation. Well, let's make these people think that it's their idea, and then they'll be much more accepting of it. Wow, you know, that's how we get into wars, and that's how we give up our our personal rights, you know, for the sake of security, is by somebody manipulating our beliefs and making us think, oh, this is the best thing for us, yes, this is great, yeah, oh, this was our idea. Uh, That's interesting. We didn't mention it in the book, but we do talk about all the different ways that the group mind is manipulated and controlled and a lot of times you're not even aware of it language so important Absolutely. the words that that go into your brain and and the way that they're structured and framed in these little sound bites you know that we hear that get in our brain like the war on drugs and you know the dirty poor and those rotten muslim terrorists i mean you get these little sound bites in your head and before you know it you're acting exactly the way they want you to act you know what the the, the i think the latest buzzword is and and it can meet the problem is it can mean so many different things to so many people, but th- that buzzword to me is well, there are two of them. One, one is smart development, 
uh, you know, in, in, which tends to suggest, you know, stacked housing, dense, you know, increasing the density along right. public, uh-huh. you know, smart, smart um, development, and then the or smart living. The other one is, and I know this is controversial, but social justice, uh, because yeah. social justice can yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> But that's perfect. I mean, how do you argue against somebody who's standing in front of you and saying, but this is about social justice? Because if you start arguing, you're the one that looks like the idiot. Exactly. Exactly. And if you fight against smart anything, you're the one that looks like you don't want progress. You Precisely. don't want to advance the country. You're, you, you just want to keep things the way they are. And oh, It's perfect. Precisely. Now, um I think uh, I want to get your take on this because I think one of the most the most effective but subtle uh, forms of control is the fact that we are all so busy now. Uh, you know, with the decline of the middle class and the economy the way it is, we are so busy chasing our tails, working harder and harder. It seems for less yep. and less, trying to get ahead but failing, sliding back, that we don't have time. Uh, to, for example, uh, investigate cases of electronic harassment, we don't have time no, uh, to, don't. to, you know, to petition Parliament or Congress or, or to object to anything. You know, if there was an ever ever a time in history where we we we, sh- we should be seeing, you know, uh, protests in the streets, uh, uh, protest songs, none of that no, is going on. No. Yeah. None of it. We we're being numbed and dumbed. I like to say um, the distractions, the the overload of information that we have coming at us is really meant to just kind of numb our brains. And and of course the media loves to dumb us down so that we just we're like the you know hamsters on the hamster wheel. We and when we get home from our jobs and dealing with our kids and this that and the other thing and paying our bills, we don't have the energy to get out there, go to a protest or go to a meetup and fight you know, fight the man, we're exhausted. All we want to do is go to bed. I think that there's also a higher prol- proliferation now of autoimmune diseases, of depression, of anxiety, of, you know, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. People are sick. People are sick. They're so overloaded. They're so tired. They're so exhausted. You know, we're not the healthiest people in the world. <laughs> so when you're asked to fight, you know, the answer is going to be, well, you know what, I need to take a nap first. And yeah. and we didn't even touch too much on surveillance, but my God, are we being watched by oh, everything. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, we have a few moments. We, we can talk about that. I mean, and obviously yeah. this didn't start with Edward Snowden's revelations. Uh, this has been going on for, for a long time. Oh, my gosh. I mean, a- any if you want to talk about computers and, and any time you turn on your computer... You're being watched. Your cell phones, your your iPads, your gadgets. Um, one of the really creepy things we learned was that, you know, there's satellite surveillance. There's camera, street camera surveillance. Obviously, that's very obvious. Now there's drone surveillance, and a lot of these satellites and drones have the ability to see through walls. So if you think that, oh, I'm safe in my home, nobody, you know, I've got my blinds or my shutters closed. No, listen. People can invade your mind. What makes you think they can't see everything, every move you're making? And we know that there's cyber surveillance. We know that cell phones have the ability to take pictures of you, to, you know, track every call that you make. But for some reason, we're accepting this. Yes, we've, we've, uh, we've created a, um, a generation of, of, of young people who don't even care about privacy. Yeah, 
Yeah, although I will say on my son's behalf, he's 14. He and his friends are pretty savvy when it comes to um, coming up with ways to to sort of beat the system. <laughs> and uh, it's real interesting that some of these really brilliant kids that are really technology-oriented, that that is one of their goals, is we're going to beat this. You guys couldn't do it. You're too, you know, you're too lazy. You're too distracted. But, yeah, I think there's also quite a bit of young people and older people who either don't care or they're right. just not aware. No, that's that true. Cell phone contra- that when you're on your computer online, on your online bank, somebody could be recording all of your keystrokes. I mean, exactly. it, it's just amazing. And the, and the rejoinder that I hear that is so distressing to me time and time again from people who have no problem with it is, well, if you've got nothing to hide. We all have something to hide. Well, it, and that shouldn't even be, you know, what the heck happened to to privacy, to personal privacy, that I could do what I want in my home, and now they're invading my mind? Come on, that's our last bastion of freedom, is the, the thoughts that we think. Well, because what goes we've, on in our brains. We've, we've, we've bought that line that it's, we need to trade a little bit of liberty for a little bit of security. Uh, please. <laughs> but we're neither free or secure, are we? No, exactly. <laughs> that's the, the ultimate joke, the ultimate irony. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're being targeted, uh, you know, there, there are Faraday cages. You can, you know, there are certain things that have proved somewhat effective. Uh, but if, I mean, how do we avoid the, the mass social engineering and brainwashing that, that, that comes at us from, from our television, or the nightly news, uh, uh, the uh, billboards, uh, it's just, we're inundated it's, with it. How do we avoid that? It is. I mean, I could say turn off your TV and don't go on the computer or use your cell phone, but that's really not reasonable. And I think for me, because that, you know, we didn't want to write a book that made people so miserable that they jumped off bridges. We do have some control here. We do need to start using discernment about what we're looking at and listening to, what we're buying into. I always say detach a little. Take a step back from anything that you hear. What does your gut tell you? Do a little bit of research. What will take you an hour to research a topic or a subject that you may not know enough about? Read books. Listen to radio shows like this. It's, uh, I think awareness is the key because the more and more people become aware of this, then I think we can possibly turn the tide. It's just right now we're still at that point where we haven't reached the you know, critical mass or the tipping point. There's still too many people out there that think that nothing like this is happening. This is just stuff that happens on conspiracy movies, you know, like, or the X-Files or what have you. Um, it, but it's real. And I don't want people to feel powerless. Well, and, 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 and we all better start paying attention and looking into this because, you know, uh, the next victim uh, for electronic harassment could be, you know, one of us or you or someone Absolutely. listening. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now, you know, anybody hearing this who thinks that that might be them, reach out. You could reach out to me. You could reach out to Richard. And there are people out there that we can kind of help you figure out what's going on. And I think that the more that network spreads, like an octopus with the tentacles, you know, at some point, we're going to have enough people that are aware of what's going on. That's going to be harder for the perpetrators to do what they've been doing. You started out, you know, being somewhat skeptical or, as you as you admitted, sort of unaware of this until people started approaching you and telling you about, uh, you know, V2K and so forth. How has this sort of altered the trajectory of, of your life? 
I was blown away by a lot of what I learned. I I knew a little bit about MK Ultra, and I knew a little little you know I knew a lot about cults. I had researched cults and the mind control issues, but you know I just never knew that it it was so insidious and that there were so many different ways that it hits us through the media and politics and surveillance and you know. But what it did is it made me more aware. So now when I go about my business, I am a little more careful, and I, and I try to teach my son. Um, and now when I talk to people, I can tell them what I know, because I think that's the best thing that we can do is spread our knowledge. Well, but you've yeah, done a great job. Away. You, uh, congratulations to you and uh, Larry, uh, Mind oh, Wars. thank you so much. Thank you. It's really a must-read uh, because there is a war on for all of our minds, and uh, I'm hoping that this book is going to be the tipping point uh, for people to become aware of what is going on. Marie, always a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Richard. My website is richardserrett.com. That's your portal to The Conspiracy Show. Albert the Intern, Eric the Intern, doing fine duty, updating the websites, the audio archives now. You can go all the way back to July of 2012 and listen to past shows. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Be sure to follow. And as always, follow the truth. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Thanks for inviting me into your house. Richard Serrett here. Welcome to all of you listening in on our flagship station, AM 740, Zuma Radio in Toronto. It's a flamethrower, 50,000 watts. And welcome to all of you listening in on one of our affiliates, all of you listening around the world online at zoomeradio.ca, and of course to the podcast. Uh, through Stitcher or iTunes or TalkZone.com. If you want to watch the proceedings and not just listen, you can watch the live stream of the program on YouTube. Just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. Click on the tweet at the top of the uh, the feed that says HOA link, and you're in. And if you happen to miss the live stream, don't forget the show gets archived, and you can can go back anytime and watch and listen. You just have to go to, um, to YouTube, and uh, search The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, and our YouTube channel will come up, and there you go. Uh, Albert and Eric are here, Tim Spreen, my technical producer, on the other side of the glass, employing his technical wizardry, so we are ready to launch. Now, my ears and eyes, the mighty Aphrodite just sent me this. Um, Infowars.com is reporting, weird nationwide Walmart closures sparking conspiracy theories. Five different Walmarts have suddenly closed claiming plumbing issues. And theories are flying uh, around the country, states, suddenly announcing, Walmart that is, announcing they were closing down for six months 
to deal with plumbing issues. Five different stores. Walmarts in uh, Pico Rivera, California, Livingston, Texas, Midland, Texas, Brandon, Florida, and Tulsa, Oma, all made the announcement. We're closing for plumbing issues. And the news, as I say, sparks is sparking wild conspiracy theories with some linking the closures to Jade Helm, the upcoming military exercise which some fear is a dry run for martial law. A Walmart would make a perfect FEMA detention facility. See ya in the camps, ranted one respondent. Again, this is being reported at Infowars.com. Another wild theory is that the stores are being decontaminated after receiving radioactive food from the Fukushima region. More, national, more rational theories involve speculation the Walmart has failed to adhere to building codes and may be using the plumbing excuse as a cover to get rid of dangerous construction materials like asbestos. What's, about, what's bizarre about the closures is that they seem to have been announced with no planning whatsoever. Shelves were fully stocked and employees were given no warning before they were laid off. At one Walmart store in Pico Rivera, California, employees protested the fact that they had been laid off with just five hours' notice. Anyway, that's, again, uh, being reported at Infowars.com, and we'll keep our eye uh, and ears wide open, eyes and ears wide open, uh, to follow up on that story. So thanks to our conspiracy show correspondent, the mighty Aphrodite, for that. All right, uh, just a quick reminder, my last reminder, if you haven't already done so, follow The Truth too. one week away, Sunday, April 26th, the Regent Theatre. And um, I was speaking with Rosemary Ellen Guiley today. She's very excited about flying up here next week to discuss spirit communication. And uh, she's just trying to figure out how is she going to get her, her spirit boxes through customs because I'm sure they'll raise a few eyebrows. Of course, they're completely uh, legitimate and harmless and so forth, but they may, it's unlikely that they've ever seen anything like that before. And I was also speaking with uh, Dr. John Hall, one of the world's preeminent experts on electronic harassment. And, uh, of course, we'll have our exact replica of the Shroud of Turin on display with Dr. Gary Chang who's going to present the latest scientific evidence, he says, proves this is the actual burial cloth of Jesus and contains evidence of a resurrection event. So, I, you know, I, I really want to fill the joint and, and give our seven amazing speakers a full house. So please call the box office, order your tickets, last chance uh, that I'll, or at least my last opportunity to ask you, 905-721-3399, 905-721-3399. And of course, uh, the shroud, for some, is, as I say, proof of Christ's resurrection and therefore of everlasting life uh, for all who believe in him. Uh, we're going to continue in that vein over the next 45 minutes or so because we're going to discuss life after death and perhaps the best evidence for the existence of an afterlife lies in the phenomenon known as the near-death experience, or NDE. Lee Whitting serves as a chaplain at a major Maine hospital. He pastors the Union Street Brick Church in Bangor, Maine, and its publications director, and is, rather, publications director for the International Association for Near-Death Studies. His interest in NDEs began as a child when he drowned in a lake near Branchville, New Jersey. Lee Whitting, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine. Pleased to be here, Richard. You owe, you have, rather, a, a Ph.D. in near-death studies. Is that correct? A uh, doctor of ministry. A doctor of ministry. Okay. Studies. Now, uh, let's, let's dial back uh, to this incident in Branchville, New Jersey, as a child. Uh, tell me about this, this drowning. Sure. 
Well, uh, I was about seven years old. Um, this was a little cottage, still in the family, as a matter of fact. Uh, my dad built it right after World War II. And I was uh, wading out into the lake, and uh, what happened was, of course, the lake went out gradually and then dropped off dramatically. And when, it, when I stepped too far, I went down. And I came up once. My mother had just gone into the cottage, and uh, I, I came up once. I screamed for her and, of course, emptied my lungs in the process. And once I'd emptied my lungs, I started sinking right to the Down bottom. you go, yes. Um, so there I'm going down to the bottom of the lake, but suddenly my soul was up in a birch tree watching as my mother came out of the cottage. She heard me, fortunately, ran down to the shore, uh, dove into the lake, and found me and hauled me out. She was smart enough to throw me face down over a log, pumped on my back. And I'll, all this time, I'm, I'm up there watching this go on. Uh, I understood exactly what was happening, and I also saw that there was a, a, a light that I could go to. But I saw my mother was very upset and uh, figured I'd better stick around, and then I was back in my body. Um, the interesting thing about it is that for years afterwards, I had this dream. And it was a dream that I interpreted as being uh, my sinking down in the lake and looking up at the light receding. And um, when I was older, in my 20s, I went back to the lake, dove into the lake, just to check this out because it had been such a persistent dream, and dove down, uh, you know, flipped over on my back as I was underwater and looked at the surface of the lake to see if that's the way it really looked. It did not. It was... Uh, evenly lit by the sunlight all the way across the lake. And it wasn't until later when I started reading about the, the whole effect of the tunnel and the light that I realized that actually that's what I had been dreaming about. I had been dreaming about falling back through this tunnel, seeing the light get further and further away, and I'd interpreted that as my sinking into the lake. Do you recall, I mean, your, your memory is quite vivid, and why wouldn't it be? This is a life-altering experience when you almost lose your life. Uh, can you recall the precise moment when you're drowning and you realize, this is it, I'm gone? I think I was out of my body before my body stopped breathing. And I think this is something that can happen uh, to people. Uh, I've seen this in the hospital as well, even before people die, you know, technically die with their hearts stopped. Um, there are um, instances where they're right out of their bodies, maybe up at the ceiling. And in fact, in talking to people who've gone through this experience, and I, I've, as a chaplain, I've talked to hundreds of people who've had various forms of an uh, out-of-body or near-death experience. Um, you, you don't have to. You don't have to be totally dead for that to happen to you. When um, you realize that your soul had came out of your body, and now you're looking down and, 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 and viewing this whole scene, including your lifeless body from above. I mean, how do you, how do you, what goes through your mind? I mean, do you not panic? Some people report having panicked. I felt at the time, and I remember this pretty clearly, that it seemed entirely natural to me. And I think perhaps children have a 
more a sense of the eternal and the nature of the soul than we do when we get older. And so I sort of attribute it to that. I think perhaps I just realized that this is what happens when, when your body dies. Uh, you, your soul leaves your body and has this opportunity to, to look around, to see what's going on, and then, if it chooses to, to depart into the light. And how else did you, you feel when you were up in that birch tree? We often hear about, uh, from people, uh, you know, feeling like they're, they're being embraced by just this un, overwhelming sense of unconditional love and so forth. How did you feel? I didn't get that far. Um, many people will see uh, a guide, a family member, an angel, um, someone to, to lead them into the light. Sometimes they just travel on through a tunnel and into the light themselves and, and meet people on the other side. I didn't get that far. I just got far enough to realize that I had a choice. And no one said, you know, it's not your time yet, you have to go back, which many people do here. I just, I just knew that uh, I, it was up to me. I had that decision to make, and I decided to go back into my body. But you did see the light. I did. I did. And, uh, but I didn't understand at the time, and, and uh, it was that dream that just haunted me until I figured it out. In many ways, you know, this, um, these experiences do change your point of view. For instance, right after that, I became as a child, very interested in astronomy. Uh, all I wanted to do was um, go and have my mother take me up to New York in the Hayden Planetarium. I wanted a telescope in the worst way. She finally got me one. And I'd go out at night and I would uh, stare up at the stars. I'd spend hours out in the backyard, you know, looking at the moon and the stars. And, and I've never um, really understood exactly why, because I don't have any memory in my near-death experience of having traveled out that way, but um, even in, in the wintertime, uh, in our little house, we had an attic, and I took, took over the attic, and I built my own planetarium with a, a little projector that I'd gotten from a store at the Hayden Planetarium, and I built a, a skyline, and I had sunrises and sunsets, and and I would go up there, and for hours I would just uh, uh, look at look at this simulated star uh, site that I had built for myself. Perhaps you were hoping to catch a glimpse of the heavens. Something something was going on there that I I wasn't aware of at the time, but I but I do think about that. When you talked about this, or did you talk about this with your parents immediately afterwards? I never did. You no, never did. I never did. Why not? Were you afraid? No, I don't think it was fear. It was um. I'm not sure why. Uh, many people have that reaction. Um, perhaps it's um, embarrassment or a sense that if I if I say something like this, you know, my mother will think that I will either it will either scare her or she'll think that I'm being foolish and and I don't want to appear foolish. But I I don't even remember thinking that through that much. I just kept quiet about it for for years and years. All right, we'll come back and continue to discuss the near-death experience. Lee Whitting serves as a chaplain at a major Maine hospital and pastors the Union Street Brick Church in Bangor, Maine. His publications, director for the International Association for Near-Death Studies, and his interest in NDEs began as a child when he drowned in a lake near Branchville, New Jersey. Back with more of our discussion right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. 
corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Lee Whitting is with us. Uh, Lee, we should mention uh, the uh, the radio program, NDE Radio, and uh, that's available on TalkZone.com. That's right. Uh, uh, it's uh, into its, well into its second year at this point. We're on... Um, every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern, and I try to have at least one guest on um, each show uh, talking about near-death experiences like, like my own. Uh, I think it's really important that people begin to realize how common this is. It's, it's not that unique uh, an experience, and in um, many different ways that the brain can shut down long enough for us to catch a glimpse of the other side. And I think that's why when you die or come close to dying, or you have some major um, accident or uh, event, you know, physical event, something that injures the brain or stops the brain from interfering and interpreting, that, that's when we get the clearest picture of what's going on on, on the other side. You, you've heard all the, uh, the, the debunkers and the skeptics and the arguments, uh, and, and they would say... Uh, that um, if you stimulate certain uh, regions of the brain, certain cortexes of the brain, you can create uh, sort of an out-of-body experience. They've done this in, in, I believe it was in Switzerland a few years ago in a, in a laboratory there. They, they stimulated a, court, a region of the brain and the, and the, um, the subject reported seeing the, uh, the tunnel and, and uh, the, the feeling that they were hovering above their body and so forth. How do you respond to that, Lee? There are a lot of, uh, I'm a, I get these questions from doctors in the hospital all the time uh, as well, because they, they want, they're looking for a, um, uh, an explanation that involves either the shutting down of the optic nerve, which creates the, the idea of a tunnel and the fading light. Um, but there have been several cases where people have not only left their body, but they've observed from outside their body what uh, is going on in the operating room they say um, they'll tell me well gee i was up by the ceiling and i'm watching the doctors trying to get my heart started again and one doctor said this and the, and the nurse said that and um she she um oh one example that's been cited um, several times is the, the nurse put uh, a man's false teeth in the drawer uh and they couldn't. They didn't know where to look for the false teeth afterwards. He said, "Oh, well, I saw you put them in the drawer." Well, he was dead on the table at the time that he made that observation. People leave their bodies, leave the room. Will go into uh, maybe the the visitors' room where the family is waiting and hear things that they say about the situation. Um, one man reported that his uh, grandmother, who hadn't smoked in years was so upset that she uh, took up smoking again. She said she went out, he, he saw her leave to go outside to smoke a cigarette. So these are things that um, uh, can't be accounted for. You can, you can perhaps uh, simulate the, uh, 
the physical feeling of dying uh, by stimulating the brain, but you can't uh, conjure up these uh, what they call veridical experiences, experiences that they couldn't have taken place any other way except the fact that you uh, that the that the soul was there to observe the event. Yeah, we're, we're constantly having to, to to sort of redefine the parameters of physical death, uh, and and there have been a number of cases when uh, individuals, patients that were in a uh, a deep deep coma and, and and thought to be you know beyond recovery, no hope, uh, no brain activity, and those people came back. Uh, so is it is it possible? that even though we think someone is clinically dead uh, and that there is no brain activity, there is, in fact, somewhere deep within the recesses of that brain, there is something going on, that consciousness still exists. Well, the consciousness exists in the soul. Um, the, when our soul leaves our body, it travels with all the information that the, the brain contains. Uh, and so, so we have this... We have this uh, source of knowledge that is both in the brain and in, I guess you could call it the mind or the soul. It's, uh, it, it, that has been understood, I think, as far back as um, of the Gnostic period, you know, in, in 200. Uh, there, there's uh, the Gospel of Mary, for instance, uh, is, uh, is one place where they, unfortunately, a page is missing from it, but... Um, Mary is telling the disciples, Mary Magdalene is telling the disciples um, something that, that Jesus supposedly told her. And she says, um, he does not see through the soul nor through the spirit. This is, a, this is someone who's dying, but the mind, which is in between the two. And I think that's a really excellent description of, of how that information is shared. Some people suppose that, you know, there's an Akashic record somewhere or uh, consciousness that that is totally outside of both uh, the brain and the mind uh, that we draw upon, but um, you know that's just supposition. I, I know you were raised a Catholic and you you dabbled in in Buddhism. Yes, um, studied at uh, Columbia. And and uh, the Union Brick uh, Union Street Brick Church is that Presbyterian? No, it's uh, I'm ordained uh, um, congregational. Uh, we're not really affiliated with any national organization like the UCC or the NACCC, although it was ordained through them. But um, we have a very different form of, <laughs> I, guess you'd, I, I guess you'd call it a form of worship. It's very informal. And um, we, uh, instead of my standing up and doing a sermon, uh, what we do is we, we have about 20, 25 people. We have tables uh, that's in sort of a horseshoe shape. We, and we sit around the tables, and I'll lead the service, but it's open to anyone to speak about anything any, at any point. And we have conversations that completely uh, defy reason as far as the, a church service goes. But it's a very, um, it's, a, it, it's sort of like, um, I guess I would compare it to Quaker meeting, but everyone's talking. You know, the Quaker meeting is a situation where everyone is, is silent. They sit together. Everyone's considered a minister, and um, they're moved by the inner light to speak from time to time. Well, we're talking all the time. It's uh, uh, it's it's a very um, 
you couldn't do it with a larger group than we have, but it's a very moving experience, actually. Um, but I don't know if you can, you know, sort of recall the, the catechism and so forth. But where does where does the NDE, the near death experience, fit into sort of the the biblical narrative, uh, uh, Christian teachings? Um, I don't know. Is there any conflict there? Uh, when we think of, okay, when you die, you go to sleep, and, <clears throat> and then there will be, you know, the judgment day and so forth, and then you will be resurrected. Uh, is there any conflict between the NDE and, uh, the, you know, the teaching of, of the Church? Well, some churches, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, for instance, believe that there's a soul sleep, that when we die, we just uh, are in a sort of a coma state until uh, the Second Coming. Uh, but St. Paul said, St. Paul, who had a near-death experience, by the way, said that uh, we, do, we don't sleep. And um, uh, as a matter of fact, he was, he was stoned to death in Lystra. A uh, mob turned on him. And um, he said, after that, I knew a man in Christ, you've, I'm sure you've heard this quote, yes. above 14 years ago. And he says, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body... So he's even using the phrase that we use today, I cannot tell, God knows. Such a one caught up in the third heaven, and I knew such a man, and of course he's talking about himself. And again he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. How he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. And uh, he says, of such and one I will glory. Um, he, uh, He, in what, 20, 30 years after the death of Christ, had captured the entire notion of what Christianity is all about. I mean, he articulated in the most profoundly theological terms what it was that Jesus came to do and what Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection. Paul is incredible, and I don't think he did it just by himself. I believe that in his trip to the third heaven, he was given information that that made it possible for him to become uh, the spokesman and and the person who then went out to the Gentiles and pushed Christianity ultimately throughout the world. Back to the the NDE. Why doesn't you you say it's more common than than most people realize? And I agree with you. Mm. Uh, but I guess the question then would be, well, why doesn't that happen all the time? Well, you know, it it does. It happens well. The, not an actual NDE. NDEs happen to between 3 and 5% of the population, which, when you figure that out, is something like 15 million people in this country alone, well, in the United States alone, have had uh, near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences. That's a lot. That's more people than have seen an unassisted triple play. <laughs> it, it, that's right. It's huge. It's huge. And what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do, not only in my chaplain work, but also on the radio, is I want people to talk about it. And now you're, this is the conspiracy show, right? There has been a conspiracy in the churches since, uh, since the uh, church fathers in 300 set about um, codifying religion. And uh, they threw out a lot of the personal mystical experience. They threw out all of the Gnostic uh, readings uh, on the light, um, they they really tried to control in all ways that they could, uh, primarily by uh, saying 
the, the only way to salvation is by is through the sacraments, the church sacraments. Um, if you don't confess to a priest, if you don't receive um, the body and blood through communion, then you're going to go to hell. That has been a conspiracy because that you know it's not just uh, Teresa of Avila who's who saw visions of of heaven and of God. Uh, many many people did, um, and you you can do it. You don't have to die to do it. People can do it through meditation. Uh, Buddhist monks have done it. Doesn't you don't have to be Christian. This is a, something that's available, and uh, to to anyone that wants to pursue it. And um, because of that, um, and because the church has has been so controlling about these things. I'll tell you something that that is a wonderful experience uh, or example, rather, of of that. Um, in 1341, there was a huge debate between the Orthodox Eastern Church and the Catholic Church, and there was a there was a man named um, uh, Barlam. He was the spokesman for the West, and I think he came out of Spain. And then there was um, there was a saint. Uh, let's see, was Saint Gregory of? I'm trying to remember. But Saint Gregory, sure, he's one of the yeah. the, um, he, so the hierarchs they, of the Orthodox Church. They both, yeah, he's a saint. They both uh, uh, decided to have this debate, in, and they went to Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. Uh, you know, where that beautiful mosaic of Jesus looking down exists, and they debated this question about light. And, and and basically, they were also debating the question of whether this was a that this light of God was something that was uh, readily available to to, um, to mystics to people who meditated, and um, and and the uh, and Gregory. Um, I'm thinking that's his, that's the, the name. Um, won the debate. I mean, he he really made the argument, and and all of these bish- these bishops who traveled from the west and from the east to hear this discussion agreed, but the Western Church was not willing to exi- to change their position on it. The Eastern Church, on the other hand, uh, did, and so there's a lot more uh, light imagery, and um, for example, uh, the notion of icons and and um, Meditating on the on a picture of a saint or a picture of Jesus in an icon. Of course, the Eastern churches are full of icons. Uh, the, the icon is a window into heaven. It's a it's a it's a way of focusing your attention and uh, meditating. And um, it's a it, it can very well be. I, in fact, I've got a couple of icons right in my office that I I look at all the time. And to look into the eyes of Jesus in a painting. Is, uh, is, a, is a very powerful thing if you're of a mind to do it. I agree. That's why they call orthodoxy the world's best-kept secret. <laughs> a little plug there. For, <laughs> it's a beautiful faith. Listen, uh, Lee, uh, we'll uh, take a time out. Okay. When we come back, we'll continue to delve into near-death experiences. And why don't we f- oh, throw open the phone lines as well? I'd love uh, to hear from people who have had a near-death experience. We'll do that. Excellent. And we'll get back to uh, more of our conversations with Lee Whitting, the host of NDE Radio on TalkZone.com and a chaplain 
at a uh, major Maine hospital and pastor of the Union Street Brick Church in Bangor, Maine. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right here. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And uh, we are back with Lee Whitting, uh, the host of NDE Radio at TalkZone.com. And uh, that's the subject of conversation every week on uh, his program, Near-Death Experiences. Uh, Lee, what about uh, sort of less uh, comforting sort of uh, experiences when when people have these near-death experiences? Instead of having a glimpse of of heaven, what about glimpses of hell? Uh, In your research or uh, experiences, does that ever happen? It does. Uh, They're called DNDEs, or distressing near-death experiences. Um, a very good source of information about those is uh, Nancy Evans Bush, who is a former president of IANS, and has written a book called uh, Dancing Past the Dark. And she had a, she'd lived a perfectly good life um, and then had this distressing near-death experience that she didn't even understand at the time. Her experience was that she um, was out in space uh, feeling very lost and alone, and these um, strange images that uh, she later identified as um, the, the the yin yang uh, circle, you know, the the interwoven dark and yes. light yes. with the dots, the opposing dots. She said they were telling her that her life was was hadn't happened, that it was all a fiction, that um, that we're living in a matrix reality that had no bearing on anything that. I mean, it was terribly upsetting to her at the time, and she didn't even recognize that uh, symbol until years later. She said she was looking through somebody's book and saw it and threw it across the room. She was so upset to see it because that that had been the symbol that was in her experience, her her distressing near-death experience. The thing that uh, most people say is if you stick it out, if you were there long enough, you can get through it. And... Um, uh, Eben Alexander wrote a book called Proof of Heaven. It was on the bestseller list not too long ago. And uh, his experience, uh, he was going through a bacterial meningitis, shut down his brain. He said that he was in a, in a terrible, horrible, cauldron-like place, which could be interpreted as hell. Um, but, he, but he got through it. He was in this coma for oh, at least a week. Came through it and... And then he was in a beautiful garden. He was on, a, a, on the wings of a butterfly, flying through a, a garden with giant flowers. And uh, there was an angel uh, as a, there as a guide for him. And so it, it's often said that we put ourselves in this place because either we're frightened by the experience of death or we're um, confused by it. Or it's been such a traumatic death, uh, suicides especially, um, can can uh, go through something like this. And when that happens, um, you just have to stay with it. The um, uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead takes you through some very dark places. As you go through the bardo in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you're um, you're not a happy camper for quite a while till you break through 
and uh, find yourself in, in a good place. So that's, uh, I think that's part of the literature and part of the understanding that it can happen. But most near-death experiences that I've, the accounts that I've had, have been uh, happy ones. Uh, I would say, you know, maybe one in, one in 20 is, is, is darker. And there have been people who've written books. Uh, to Hell and Back is one, and uh, uh, one fellow said he, he saw all of these uh, people suffering in cages, and he saw Adolf Hitler in a cage that was uh, being burned, you know, eternally and so forth. The, the, um, is that a metaphor created by the mind, do you suppose, or, or is that place real? Well, he thought it was real. He thought it was real. You know, the earliest story that we have, or one of the earliest stories we have, is, a, is a Plato's account uh, of a soldier named Ur. He is brought back. He's killed on the battlefield, and along with his companions, they're brought back to be uh, burned on a funeral pyre. A pyre. And uh, this is like ten days after he died. And Plato reports that he suddenly, he, the guy sits up, you know, just before they light the pyre, and says, I've been sent back to tell you what happens when we die. He said, I was traveling after I died. I was traveling with, with my companions, with the souls of the companions that had been brought back uh, across a beautiful field. And we came to a place where we were judged. And some of us went, he said, I, I was told that I wasn't going there because I was going to be sent back. But some people went down into a punishment place, and some people went up into a heavenly place. But it wasn't forever. It was something that people went through, and after they had pretty much cleaned the slate, you know, either they'd enjoyed the privileges of, of uh, having been good, led good lives, or suffered the consequences of having lived bad lives, they all rejoined together in the field and greeted each other and talked about their experiences, what was hell like, what was heaven like, and then they go on uh, to be reincarnated. That was Plato's take on it, and, and it's the deepest um, uh, story of uh, a near-death experience that I've, that I've encountered because it goes through heaven and hell and comes out the other side. The other... Um aspect of the near-death experience is when people do, in fact, uh, pass over. Uh, let's say uh, they're in palliative care in a hospital, uh, and, and the families uh, that are sort of sitting vigil and watching over these people, the things that they witness uh, or hear uh, the, uh, the, you know, a, a loved one, you know, say uh, in, in the final moments, um, do you ever discuss that on your program? Oh, yes. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a story about a nur- that a nurse told me. Um, she uh, had a patient. He'd been very unhappy, very grouchy, uh, miserable, in pain. And she came in one day, and he, and he was so much happier. And she said, well, this is a change. You know, I, I haven't seen you this happy. I'm so pleased to see that you're, that you're in a better place. And he said, well, my son came to visit me, and he said, he's going to take me home tomorrow. She said, well, I thought your son had died. And he said, oh, he did. And he's coming tomorrow at 1 o'clock, and he's going to take me home. And could you come and sit with me? And she said, well, you're not even that sick. You're not, you're not going to die. But she said, but I'll be here. And the next day she was sitting with him, and at 1 o'clock he raised his arms up to the ceiling with this great smile on his face, and he died. Remarkable. 
Remarkable. Another story <laughs> that a nurse told me. I'll just get you to hold on to that. I want to hear this story, Lee, and we will do that first order of business after this timeout. Lee Whitting, NDERadioTalkZone.com, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Lee Whitting is with us talking about near-death experiences, and he certainly had one uh, when he was very young. He drowned in New Jersey, and his soul left his body, and now all of a sudden he's looking down uh, from above as his mother drags his lifeless body out of the water uh, and performs uh, CPR. And um, that certainly changed the trajectory of his life. And why wouldn't it? Now, Lee, before the break, you were going to, we were speaking about uh, uh, medical staff who have witnessed some pretty remarkable things. This is interesting because when you, you know, when you talk to them sort of privately, and I'm talking doctors, nurses, emergency responders, and so forth, they will, they will tell you things about, you know, things that, that defy rational explanation, scientific explanation, uh, relating to um, near-death experiences and, and, and uh, people witnessing patients dying and the things that happened to them. You had another story about a nurse. Yes, this one is uh, pretty remarkable. I've only heard of one case like this. There was this patient. The nurse was very fond of her. She did not want to be resuscitated. She wanted to be you know, left alone. If, if she coded, she did not want to be revived. But uh, the nurse really liked this woman. And when, she, when, in fact, the alarm went off that her heart had stopped, the nurse, realizing who it was, came running down the hall with the intention of doing CPR. She said, I was knocked flat on my back by a force that I do not understand. She said, there was nothing I tripped over. She said, I was knocked back on my back. And she said, I could not get up. She said, there was a weight sitting on me that was so heavy that I couldn't move. And uh, she assumes, and I think rightly so, that the force of this woman, uh, this woman's desire to die was so great that she decided that she was not going to be resuscitated and she was going to hold this woman in place until her body had, was thoroughly dead. What do you think happens to the soul after, in the immediate moments after we die. I mean, you got to a certain point where you're hovering over the body, uh, but you chose to go back into your body. And let me, before, let me stop right there. Do we always have that choice? No, we don't always have that choice. Um, uh, You know, it depends on how much damage has been done to the body, I'm sure. But I have seen, I actually, I've participated in a couple of events that I consider to be miracles. Uh, one, I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, this fellow hung himself. He, his his mother found him hanging, was able to lift him up sufficiently that she 
and I don't know how, because this guy was over six feet tall and she was tiny. But she was able to lift him and extricate him from, from the noose. He comes to the hospital. The doctors, no, no heartbeat. They get the heart going, but they say there's no activity in the brain. He's brain dead. She asked me to pray with her over him. And we joined hands, and we stood on either side of the bed, and we prayed for her son. The next day, I came into the hospital. I went over to the room, and he was standing up arguing with her. <laughs> he was fine. He was There was no damage to his brain whatsoever. And uh, I can only attribute it to a, to a miracle because the doctors could not understand it. They had no explanation whatsoever. You imagine what, what would the world be like if everyone had an NDE? And, and those people, you know, they came back, and it, obviously it would change the perception. The world would be, would be so different. Um, there, is a, there is a quote in Jeremiah. Let me read this to you. This is Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And I take this to mean all of us, because we're an extension, according to Paul, of that. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And, and declares the Lord, For I will forgive their wickedness, and will remember their sins no more. In other words, he's saying there's going to be coming a time when we will all know what people uh, who've had near-death experiences know. Um, if, if they, you know, if they think about it after they come back, um, and you know, in a situation like that, the world would be so enlightened. <laughs> and you know, not everyone's going to have a near-death experience, and that's why I think people who've had them have an obligation to share their gift because there's not—it's nothing less than a huge gift from God to to have had one of these experiences. And that's what I'm trying to encourage, you know, with my radio show, with NDE Radio, is to have people tell other people what's going on on the other side so that they will have hope. You know, I go into the hospital, they give me a sheet every morning that has all of the people, all, of, all the names, and all of the religions. In the years that I've been doing this, there are fewer and fewer religions named. Most people now say... If they're under 60 or 65, they say no preference, none. Uh, they have no no affiliation to any church, and uh, pretty much they're they're not thinking about God whatsoever. The real young kids are into zombies and vampires, and I mean everyone's got this sort of spiritual longing in their hearts, but the kids haven't been given any direction, and they don't know which way to turn, and and they're coming up with all of this you know, Marvel comic fantasy stuff. It's, it's a disturbing trend. It is. It's, it's very scary because they're missing, they're missing the whole point. And uh, I don't know what we do about that, but I think the, uh, talking about the near-death experience is certainly a very important part of it. Um, 
Do we have time for a couple more? Uh... Yes, please. Okay. I'll tell you the worst death I've been a party to and the, and the best death. The worst death I, I attended in the hospital was a man who was incredibly unhappy. Uh, he was dying of cancer. He was in terrible pain. His family was, uh, uh, they were all emotional wrecks, screaming and crying. And, and he was, and when he died, I felt this cold, icy invasion of my body, of his soul trying to take me over. And I excused myself from the room because I felt nauseated. I went out into the hall. I knew exactly what was happening. I went out into the hall and I said, you're not coming in here. This is not where you belong. You have to move on. And and it left. That was, it's only happened to me once and I hope to God it never happens again. Wow. The best experience I ever had was with a, uh, he was a grandfather, a great-grandfather must have been a wonderful man. I didn't know him while he was conscious. But his family was there. All the generations were in the room with him. The room was packed with people that loved him, and he loved them, and they were saying, don't worry about us. Uh, God is waiting for you. Don't worry about a thing. Uh, we love you, and uh, everything is fine. He was given total permission to die. And when he died, it was like... Uh, this is hard to describe, but it was almost like this was not something visible, but it was like a golden light poured down into the room. It was almost like, if, if you could imagine, honey filling <laughs> filling the room without actually being honey filling the room. It was so amazing and so uplifting. It was almost as if the whole room had been taken on the journey partway to his heavenly reward. And I was stunned. I, w- I was amazed, and that's only happened to me once. But I would welcome it. I would welcome that experience over and over again. Sometimes a, an NDE can can tear families apart. I've 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 talked to people who have had uh, spouses, partners that have undergone an NDE, uh, and for them, uh, it it wasn't a happy ending because their their partner changed. Uh, they're, they're, they found that they had little in common. Uh, they were just sort of irreconcilable differences. And for the person who had the NDE, there was no going back to that old life. Absolutely. Uh, people have gotten divorced. Um, their values change. I mean, p- people who've been in business their whole lives have an NDE, and suddenly they think, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing with my life? I'm supposed to be here helping other people. You know, my job is to, you know, to do whatever, you know, to, to heal the sick or to uh, feed the poor or, you know, suddenly instead of working on Wall Street, they're down at the homeless shelter uh, preparing meals for, for the, you know, people coming in off the street. And uh, this can, you know, if you're, if the man suddenly does this and the wife who's used to living in a fa- fancy house in the suburbs realizes that they're not going to be able to do that anymore it it can devastate a family but uh it is such a it's such an eye opener to the person who goes through this that i think they have to go they have to go with that it would be a mis- mistake for them to ignore that just for the sake of uh, keeping peace in the family uh, uh there are also uh, uh, cases in which the the person that suffered the nde when they came back they 
their physicality, their appearance changed significantly. What's that all about? Mm. It, it can change you. It can heal you. Uh, that uh, The fellow who hung himself, for example, was fine. I mean, that, that was a healing. Um, uh, Paul, who was St. Paul, when he was stoned, his body was broken and was damaged, and he came back to a, to a healed body. Um, people have all sorts of abilities afterwards, uh, psychic abilities. Uh, there's a, a Canadian woman I interviewed on my show who, who can move things with her mind. Uh, I mean, <laughs> through a near-death experience, she gained um, psychokinetic ability. Um, people can be psychic. Uh, people can. There was a fellow who uh, learned how to play the harp. He had a near-death experience. The angels told him, "You're going to go back and you're going to be a tremendous musician." He'd never played an instrument in his life, and he was playing. Uh, he was playing beautiful music within weeks of his NDE. Tony Sicoria, the um, struck by lightning near Cooperstown, New York, and and uh, became a concert pianist. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Have you heard about Tony's case? Yeah, yes, I have. Yeah. Remarkable, remarkable. Well, I have to commend you uh, on NDE uh, radio because um, ultimately, you know, we so much of the airwaves are, are filled up talking about ephemeral things. Uh, and they are important. We, you know, we do have one foot uh, in this reality and we need to talk about it. But ultimately, the, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the most important question the most important issue is what happens after we die, uh, and and you're talking about it uh, all the time, every week, on TalkZone.com. Well, it's a it's a privilege for me to be able to do that. Uh, the IANS group uh, has been for years. You know, it was founded by Raymond Moody and and um, Elizabeth Kubler Ross and others who are, are still working in the field. And they've been collecting these near-death experience stories uh, for a long time. It's a huge uh, treasure trove of uh, material for people who might want to research this or to learn more about it. Well, I appreciate you uh, hanging out with us tonight. This was a really enjoyable conversation. This thank you. This has been great, Richard. Thank you so much. All right. Lee Whitting, thank you. My thanks to Eric and Albert and uh, Tim Spreen, of course, back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.